hello, everybody. Good evening. Uh, good evening. Welcome to Art Space Books and Talks. Uh, thank you all for coming this evening. It's great to see such a substantial crowd. Um, so, as the title behind me clearly states, tonight's event is focused on the subject of artists' resale rights. It has stemmed, however, from a number of ongoing and diverse conversations amongst individuals and groups related to wider concerns around artistic labor, market conditions, that's very appropriate, that is. <laughs> uh, market conditions, sales contracts, and intellectual property legislation. In April, Lisa Skolny from Working Artists and the, and the Greater Economy Wage invited a number of people to meet with April, April Britsky, the executive director of the Canadian artist organization, CARFAC, to discuss specifically their campaign to have the artist resale right added to the Canadian Copyright Act and the equivalent movements in the US towards such a law being implemented here. Uh, one outcome of this meeting was the formation of a working group under the auspices of WAGE as a ground from which to open up a conversation around the artist's resale right to a wider public. Those of us involved in this group come from different perspectives, but what was uniformly apparent to us was the degree to which legislative discussions around the art market tend to omit the participation of artists. Beyond high-profile stories in the media around legal disputes between collectors, galleries, and artists, there are nuanced systemic operations at work that affect artists at all levels of wealth and commercial presence. The current proposals at congressional level around the artist's resale right carry with them not only a relationship to the existing conditions of the secondary art market, but connections to early, earlier implementations of laws asserting artists' moral rights, to self-regulating initiatives such as the Siegler-Prujanski contract, and more broadly to the manner in which property rights dictate legal and societal conventions. So tonight's event is intended to provide the groundwork for a debate we hope will continue through a series of further events. As a group, we have been looking at both the nuts and bolts of the proposed legislation and also the broad landscape of the secondary market, its structural imbalances, and impact on the nature of artistic production and reception, and how artists' resale rights might provide a platform to address these issues. These conversations have taken in historical precedents, alternative models, and practices in other countries and regions. What we feel is central to this debate is the very notion of artists' rights and how this connects to larger questions of equity within the sphere of the art industry and its regulation either by self-initiative or federal law. The presentations and discussion this evening will hopefully cover much of this ground and open up into theoretical debate and an address of whether the legislation currently on the table is fair and feasible. So the, the structure for tonight is that we'll begin with two presentations that will provide important background to the discussion. Dr. Theodore Fedder and Janet Hicks from the Artists' Rights Society will present the work they've been doing lobbying for the introduction of the artist's resale right into legislation and the current status and terms of the proposed bill. And then following that, curator and art historian Lauren van Haftenschick will then provide a historical perspective concerning artist contracts and the legal history of art in the US. These presentations will be followed by a discussion between art dealer Maxwell Graham, 
artist Hans Hacker and R.H. Quaitman, and Justice Barbara Jaffe of the New York Supreme Court. And this conversation will be further moderated by, by Lauren. So I'm not going to provide um, full-length biographies for the participants here, as we have a, a number of people you know, taking part, so it will take a while. But please do refer to the handouts available, uh, that probably placed on your seats, uh, for more background on each of the speakers. We're really very pleased and grateful that they all agreed to participate tonight at quite short notice, which I think suggests uh, the, the broad and wider kind of interest in this subject. Um, and it's really great to have them here to share their knowledge and experiences. And we'd also like to say that we would, would prefer to reserve questions from the audience uh, until the discussion phase at the end of the evening. Uh, and after the moderated conversation between participants, we're hoping that the debate will really open up at that point into a more open public forum uh, for people here present to share questions and thoughts and experiences. And as I said, this is the first event in a number we're hoping to do that will broaden that discussion as much as possible. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Dr. Theodore Feder and Janet Hicks from the Artists' Rights Society. Thank you. Just want to see if I can get a light here. Um, Yeah, thank you very much. So welcome to everybody. It's a packed house. Uh, I'd like to point out at the outset something that most of you know or may suspect, but it's worth repeating. that visual artists are the only members of the creative community in the United States who do not receive residual payments for the latest sales of their works. Composers and lyricists will collect some $2 billion distributed to them by their collective rights societies, ASCAP and BMI. Playwrights and screenwriters get public performance royalties akin to residuals for later productions of their works. Actors in film and TV get residuals. All of these are revenues garnered by creators after they've created their work. Unfortunately, visual artists receive none of these and do not earn a penny in residual or resale payments. The benefits derived from the results of later sales of their works, as you know, accrue entirely to collectors uh, auction houses and galleries. Now, it's often been said that only wealthy artists or well-known artists would benefit from their right. It's really not so. The, the statistics last year in those countries that have the resale royalty belie this. In France in 2014, there were a total of 2,177 individual artists who have received the resale royalty and in Germany, 1,246, in the UK, 1,840 artists. Now, the rule was adopted in Europe almost 100 years ago in 1920, um, partially as a result of a cartoon that I think has been shown on the board earlier when two ragamuffins, poorly dressed kids, they're in rags really, look through the window of an auction house and see a work of their father's being sold gathered around bidding for it are men in top hats. And one of the ragamuffins says to the other, tiens, elles vendent un oeuvre de papa. Look, they're selling a work of, of dad's. That cartoon by Foran went a long way to starting a movement in France, which resulted in the resale royalty. 
which has been adopted in a number of other countries subsequently. And in 2001, the European Union harmonized its resale royalty and mandated that every single European Union state adopt the rule. And today I'll add that in addition to the European Union countries, there are more than 70 nations around the world that have the resale royalty. Important to note, however, that it's based on reciprocity. The, if you don't have the resale royalty in your country, you cannot as an artist collect from the sale of your work abroad. It's only something that's honored between nations that have the rights. So of all the sales of American work in Europe and Japan and Hong Kong and so on, not a penny goes to their American creators. That would change if we adopted the rule ourselves. Now, we've advocated for resale royalty at Artists' Rights Society for some 25 years, beginning in 1990. In the early 1990s, uh, Senator Kennedy and Representative Kastenmeier proposed a resale royalty bill, and the Copyright Office took it seriously, conducted hearings. Uh, I testified at those hearings. Unfortunately, at the end of the day, the Copyright Office uh, recommended that it not be adopted, a rule not be adopted in the States at that time. But it added, and I'll quote this, should the European community, meaning the European Union, adopt a harmonious rule for the member states, then we should take another look at the rule for the US. As I pointed out, that rule was adopted 14 years ago, 2001, and our adoption is long overdue. Now, there have been a court decision some of you have heard about in the California case, which occurred very recently on May 5th, and that was a case brought before the California, uh, a, a, a review court in California, because there were uh, lower courts that declared that the California Resale Royalty Act was unconstitutional. Why did they say it was unconstitutional? Because it was pretended that the California rule could extend beyond the borders of California and control the sale of a work owned by a California resident in New York. And in legal terminology, that would violate the Interstate Commerce Clause, which maintains that only commerce between the states can be regulated by the federal government, not by an individual state. And so I'm happy to say the uh, review court reviewed that lower court decision and decided to throw it out. They said, okay, maybe there's a few words in the California Resale Act that holds or could be interpreted to mean that a sale in New York would fall under it. We'll just eliminate those few words. And what they did is they reinstated and reaffirmed the validity of the California Resale Royalty Act. But what does it do? It really points out the need for adopting resale royalty on a federal level to obtain in all the states, not just in one. So lastly, I, I want to point out the glaring inequities between the commissions earned by auction houses and what an artist would earn if the current rule, the Art Act, which is sponsored mostly by Congressman Natalie, if that was adopted. And as you probably know, there's a cap for what an artist could earn under the Art Act. I find that cap to be much too small. It's $35,000. In, in technical terms, it says 5% of the sale up to $700,000. At $700,000, 5% equals 35,000. And from that point on, it's capped and frozen. 
they did this much against our objections because the rule in the European Union is even lower. It's roughly about $12,500 as the cap. Years ago, the royalty in France was 3% of the sale. And in, and in Germany, 5%. 14 years ago, I argued against the EU adopting a harmonized rule that was this low. But it was the only thing they could do, they felt, to get the UK to agree to adopting the rule. Not only the UK, but some Scandinavian countries were against it as well. So here are some figures on the comparative inequities. In the first week of May 2014, Christie's sold in excess of $1 billion at auction. And by the way, the auction sales for last year exceeded $70 billion, of which the U.S. accounted for a third, or roughly $23.3 billion. At that Christie's sales, there were incredible sums, uh, $81 million for Mark Rothko, uh, $56 million for Andy Warhol's work, and an astonishing $179. $0.4 million for a work by, um, by Pablo Picasso. Now, according to the New York Times, in a report of February 18, 2013, auction houses typically charge 25% buyer's commission on the first $100,000 of the sale, a 20% commission on the next $1.4 million, in the case of Christie's, and 20% of the next $1.8 million in the case of Sotheby's. Thereafter, they have a flat 12% against all the, uh, all the sale prices. So in a hypothetical sale at auction of $20 million on a work of art, Christie's would earn $2,557,000. $2,557,000. The artist, who now gets nothing, would under Congressman Nadler's bill earned $35,000. Better than nothing, but it's, it's pretty low by comparison. Still, our opponents, mostly from the galleries and the auction houses, argue that this is an excessive reward for artists. So thank you very much. I want to start by saying, um, again, that Really, the, the purposes of having this event are pretty manifold. Um, really, more than anything, we're, we're interested in just opening up this conversation um, in a much more public way that involves artists really at every level and, and people in you know, the field kind of at every level that we feel like is not happening very actively right now. Um, and I want to just add a little anecdote, I think, that came up uh, during one of our first meetings um, of the working group, where I think Richard or someone asked, asked me what my position was on the Art Act, or maybe we asked each other, and, and none of us really had a clear idea, actually. Um, so I, I'm just sort of prefacing this conversation you know, with that observation to say that I think we're really interested in making this an open learning process, an open discussion process, um, and I'm really happy to see a lot of people here who have been involved in this debate on a number of sides, because I think we're going to have a great conversation come out of it. Um, so really also the point is not only to discuss the legislation as proposed, but to talk about you know, other alternatives that have been proposed um, and whether you know, something like a contract or other sort of non-legislative solution to the royalty issue for artists um, might actually be 
more productive. Um, and this, of course, is not a new debate, you know, but we as a group feel that, again, it has not been addressed enough in public forums. Um, so we're hoping that we can just go from here and, and thank you to our ARS for giving some international context too. Um, so I'm just going to briefly kind of go through some of the points that were raised the last time the Copyright Office released a report on the resale royalty right. Um, and some of the observations that they came away with, which Ted hinted at, are that, you know, visual artists remain disadvantaged as a practical matter by certain factors endemic to the creation of works produced in singular form or very limited copies. Um, again, a resale royalty could be one of many factors affecting the location of auctions and art sales, but there's no evidence to conclusively establish that it would harm the U.S. visual art market. This has been one of the arguments used against having a resale royalty bill in the U.S., but, you know, again, um, the Copyright Office has, I think, very interestingly come up in favor of the bill this last time. Um, what was interesting, though, is that in their recent report, they also said that it's only one option to address the disparate treatment of artists under the law. Um, it's not the only option, and certainly more deliberation is going to be necessary. Um, and again, uh, these are things that are all open to debate. So the issue of a resale right as a legislative concern first really earned broad attention um, after the infamous Skull Auction in 1973 at Park Rene, New York. And because it's always fun, I think we can just revisit that history for a second. On the 18th of October 1973, the Skulls auctioned off 50 works from their collection through Sotheby's Park Burnett. This was the first time a collector from that small contemporary art world had treated their collection as an investment. You're going to be a millionaire after this? Yeah, I suppose so. Skull was a shameless self-promoter, the most written and talked about man in art town for a while. There are very little aesthetics in a park for net sale. There's a, it's a question of money and a lot of people are prepared to pay a lot of money for it. When I bought paintings, I never knew about the word investment. Art is supposed to be such a fine, tony, cultural thing, you know? And suddenly people are bidding wildly like it was a commodity just like any other. And they just talk about the money of our hard, cold money. Many of the artists were suspicious. Jim, I want to ask you about the Skull Auction. There was work of yours there. Yeah. How, uh, what did you think about it? I was so mad I left town with my girlfriend <laughs> and went to the Catskills. <laughs> I was really pissed off. May I see your tickets, please? They buy with their millions. They buy with their millions. The sale was picketed by angry artists whose work Skull had bought for not very much. Among them was Robert Rauschenberg. The historic moment in the auction was the sale of Jasper Johns's double white map, the highest price ever paid for a work by a living American artist. 
American contemporary art as a serious commodity was about to be born. Thanks, Bob. They were idiots. <laughs> Rauschenberg, on whose work Skull had made such a profit, gate-crashed Skull's celebrations. Bobby went there and he complained to, to uh, Skull. His work was going for a price and he, you know, he, he didn't get any, anything from, from that. So Rauschenberg felt he had been ripped off by the auction. Yes. Robert, how are you? Nice to no, see you. <laughs> I have been crying for Let's go. You need to send me flowers. Send you flowers? Nothing for happened. Sunday. Where? For what? I should have anyway. It was a great mock-up. You're right. You're right. You're I've been working my ass off for you to make that profit. How about yours that you're going to sell now? I've been working for you, too. We work for each other. Oh, okay, stop, let's make stop, a deal. Deal. <laughs> stop it cold. Stop it cold. You buy the next one, okay? Why at not? these prices, you buy the next one. Well, I'll take a look at it. Come to the studio. All right. <laughs> Why not? Has any artist ever got anything from the resale for these huge prices of his work? I wouldn't, I don't think so. Good night, Ruth. Good night. Thanks a lot, Fred. Go on. After the sale, Rosenquist and Rauschenberg decided to fight for artists' royalties on future sales of their work. Bob and I lobbied in Washington for a royalty bill. Now that was very strongly opposed by every dealer at every auction house, wasn't it? Well, by the Art Dealers Association. And it, our thing was feather bedded into a welfare bill and it passed the Senate, failed the House. The Skull Auction shifted the art world's emphasis from aesthetics to money. From now on, not just art lovers, but everyone would want a piece of the action. Contemporary art and big money would be ever more closely entwined. Down in Soho, I saw artists who couldn't afford the rent on their studios move out, and the galleries and the yuppies move in. 
As the 80s dawned, we no longer have the imperialism of New York, we'd have the imperialism of the market. So, despite uh, Robert Hughes' very uh, dramatic narration there, <laughs> I, I, I think it is sort of interesting to see that you know, infamous encounter between Skull and Rauschenberg actually take place. Um, really, on one hand, because there's so many of the kind of double tensions of this whole conversation are embedded in that moment, right? This question of, you've been networking, I've been working my ass off for you to make that profit. And then Skull says, well, look at the prices you're going to get now. Um, but yes, uh, as we heard, um, the California Resale Royalty Act was enacted in 76, although it has been challenged. Um, but this is what it has uh, stipulated, um, that artists at the time of sale is a U.S. citizen or has been a California resident for two years, seller resides in California or takes place in California. This is it's all continually being challenged right now. Um, work as original painting, drawing, sculpture. The work is sold by the seller for more money than he or she paid. Gross price of more than a thousand, etc. Um, so following this was kind of a, a string of, you know, unfortunately failed um, uh, proposals to enact this kind of resale right on a federal basis. Um, the Visual Artist Re Residual Rights Act of '78, or the Waxman Bill. Um, stipulated that 5% royalty to visual artists to be paid by seller and resales of artworks of a thousand or more. It would create a national convention of uh, the visual arts uh, for the purpose of administering the right. Um, artworks had to be registered. Uh, and the right would be prospective, which is important, um, beginning one year after the bill's enactment. Um, does not apply to artists reselling their own work. On and on. Um, next, we had the Visual Arts Right Amendment of 86, which became the Visual Artist Rights Act of 87, which is the Kennedy proposal, um, which would have provided that the seller of a work pay a royalty of 7% of the difference between the purchase price and the sales price when the resale price was greater than 1,000 and 150% higher than the price paid by the seller. Uh, royalties for deceased artists would revert to their estate and this was attached to moral rights legislation. And again, um, at the time, this is a quote by Kennedy, uh, the serious problem of economic exploitation of visual artists by permitting them to share an appreciating commercial value of the work. Uh, and this is the portion of the bill that was act enacted, uh, the Visual Artist Rights Act, which is our moral rights code, um, which grants artists the right to claim authorship, the right to prevent the use of one's name on any work the author did not create, the right to prevent use of one's name on any work that has been distorted, mutilated, modified, against, uh, that would, in a way that would be prejudicial to their re honor reputation. On. Um, and part of uh, the, the Visual Artist Rights Act of 1990 required that the Copyright Office conduct a study uh, to see, kind of, really, to actually to better assess kind of what the reality of adopting a resale royalty would be in the U.S. Um, and at the time, in '92, they found that if Europe were to harmonize their resale royalty laws, the U.S. should consider adopting such a law. Uh, that any resale royalty enacted in the U.S. must be at the federal level. 
And they also kind of go into a lot of other alternatives, which I think is quite interesting, um, noting that you know, perhaps royalties could instead be dispersed, or something similar to a royalty could instead be dispersed through a public display right, meaning essentially exhibition fees for artists could be part of federal legislation, um, which you know, commercial right, rental rights and compulsory licensing are related to. Uh, and of course, they mention increasing federal grants for artists. So the first version of this current bill that we have, uh, the Art Act, uh, was the Equity for Visual Artists Act of 2011, also introduced by Representative Gerald Nadler. And it required that works of art sold for $10,000 at an auction uh, by someone other than the offering artist, uh, that the entity collecting the money or other consideration pay a royalty equal to 7% um, to a visual artist collecting society. I'm not going to read all the terms. Um, what was interesting here and what has been totally abandoned in the current bill is that half of that 7% was to go to you know, this net pool that would be dispersed to artists, and then another half would go to fund purchases by US nonprofit museums. Um, and that actually was kind of proposed as a way of making up for this argument that the resale royalty only uh, benefits artists who are already kind of at the very top of the art market. Um, but again, it was, it was slashed from the currently proposed bill, um, which here uh, grants that, as Ted said, the right to collect or authorize collection of a royalty if the work is sold by a person other than the author for 5000 at auction. It, limit, it defines auction to a public sale of visual art. Um, by an entity that sold at least one million of works of art in the previous year, revises the term work of visual art, which I'll go into. Um, and then again, there's a 5% cap, uh, or 35, I'm sorry, it's $35,000 cap. And again, the, the royalty fee would be directed to a collecting society. Um, also, one of the issues um, that has come up around it is that the, the right is not um, inalienable, um, which is kind of a question that we've gone back and forth on, but I'll come back to that too. So it is important to note that Nadler has been pretty explicit in saying this is not an anti-poverty bill, it's a fairness and equity bill. And um, again, I think that's an important way for all of us to kind of couch this conversation. So why not royalties for visual artists? Um, you know, none of this is to say that the bill is perfect as it is, or you know, even that it meets the needs of most artists. Um, and there have always been, you know, kind of unclear justifications, for example, you know, for why singular art objects could be considered within the same legal rubric as you know, recordings or other media that is, uh, you know, for the sake of argument, able to be reproduced infinitely. Um, and there are really both ideological and legal challenges for why there's not thus far been a resale royalty for visual artists in the US. Um, I think it's important to kind of go through some of these persistent conflicts. Um, so a recurrent concern that I've actually had with just in having conversations with artists about this bill is just how limited um, a work of visual art really is um, under, uh, under the copyright code. Um, so 
Right now, these would be the only types of work covered by the law, a painting, drawing, print, sculpture existing in a single copy, and a limited edition of 200 copies or fewer that are signed and consecutively numbered, um, are still photographic images for exhibition purposes. Um, it's really you know, quite questionable um, whether some forms of you know, digital art or even sound art or installation could be covered. Um, or even conceptual art, right? Um, you know, you'd have to argue that the that in the case of Sala Witt, you'd kind of have to argue that his certificates are original drawings, which is kind of a complicated um, historical uh, view on it. Um, but you know, clearly they can be sold at auction. Um, as I mentioned, the 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 Art Act or the resale royalty right as proposed is not inalienable, which means that were an artist asked to sign away their copyrights in the work, they would lose the resale royalty. Um, and just briefly, I mean, they, signing away one's copyright is allowed um, under US law. You have to do so by contract, but this is, does happen sometimes. Um, some claim that the resale right is a violation of the first sale doctrine, which allows the owner of a lawfully made copy of a copyrighted work to sell or otherwise dispose of the possession of that particular copy without the authority of the copyright owner. The doctrine is codified in subsection 109 of the Copyright Act of 76. This aspect of the copyright code speaks to a fundamental aspect of US law, that private property rights are highly privileged, and once an individual has acquired something, it is theirs to do with as they please. Um, we might note, however, that you know, given Vera's um, limitations, really, on, a on a, what a purchaser can do with a work of art, right, a collector in the US cannot destroy or damage the work of a living artist um, because of Vera. Um, you know, this might be kind of chipped away at already. Um, some of the legal and constitutional issues at stake concern whether or not the bill could be applied retroactively to the resale of works uh, that were initially sold by artists prior to the statutory effective date. Um, as currently proposed, the Art Act would not be limited to works created or sold after um, the Act's effective date. Um, leading certain critics of the bill to claim that it renders the act uh, in violation of the takings clause within the Fifth Amendment, uh, which states that private property shall not be taken for public use without just compensation. Under this view, imposing the royalty on works already sold would upset their owner's private property expectations. Uh, similar arguments have been used to claim the bill is, as proposed violates the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendments. Uh, with critics claiming that the act applied retrospectively would implicate owners' interest in fair notice and repose under the due process clause. The same critics argue that any resale royalty that applied only to auction houses meeting a certain annual sales threshold would implicate the Constitution's Bill of Attainder Clause, which prohibits statute that inflict punishment on a specified individual or group. Uh, in their view, such concerns would arise if the law were drawn to target a handful of auction houses while excluding large swaths of the art market, such as smaller auction houses, internet-based sellers, galleries, and private sales. Um, and I should note that this kind of came up more in conversation uh, in regard to the 2011 version of the bill, which was targeting auctions um, or auction houses that had made 25 million in sales instead of one. 
another issue that has been raised against the resale royalty is the question of whether it can be said to truly provide for the economic incentivization of artists to produce works. Um, an issue often raised in tandem with the criticism that a royalty for visual artists would only matter to a small percentage of artists. Um, while the US hasn't really conducted a thorough study of this, um, there's been a comparable study in the UK since their adoption of the resale royalty right, um, you know, whether the royalty was actually an incentive for artists to produce work, uh, and clearly, actually, uh, it seems like it has been. Um, with very significant and quite significant, taking up 32 and 36% uh, of those surveyed. Um, so one of the really core difficulties for introducing a resale right to the U.S. is the simple fact that the law, uh, as, mostly, as, as it has most widely been enacted, is a principle of civil law and not common law. So um, as, it's actually from artist Maria Eichhorn's book, The Artist Contract, um, uh, in a section she co-wrote with Daniel McLean, a London-based lawyer. Um, common law protects art primarily as artists or an item of study, whereas civil law in countries such as France and Germany focuses on the rights of artists to have their authorial interests protected independently of economic interest and preserves the bond between an artist and her work even after she no longer owns it. Thus, copyright laws under common law are seen as the statutes of owners, whereas under civil law, copyright laws are considered statutes of authors. Under the civil law philosophy of authorship, artists are understood to have a continued interest in their work, which as a result can never be simply transferred as any other form of property. Uh, so it's really no surprise that the Visual Artists' Rights Act came up against so much resistance, um, and really not only in Congress, um, and that alternatives proposed for protecting an artist's continued interest in their art have come uh, in large part via contracts or just kind of private, other private agreements. Um, so while referred to in the shorthand as private law, contracts are subject, of course, to the laws written by legislatures and interpreted by courts, you know, the infrastructure of legality. Um, and private contracts should exist within the rule of law in order to maintain necessary restrictions on what one can contract into uh, or contract away. Um, but none of this is to say that the public-private distinction renders the idea of contract as an expression of free will irrelevant or that you know, contracts are really constrained within the so-called shadow of the law. Instead, they really have historically offered an important space for socio-legal, political, and economic critique um, and have offered certain practical solutions for artists that are worth exploring. Um, so of course, chief among the examples um, is the Artist Reserve Rights Transfer and Sale Agreement, otherwise known as ARTSA, or the Siegelob-Projansky Agreement. Um, I found that you know, looking at writing on this document between legal texts and art historical texts, it's always called something very different. In legal texts, it's often only the Projansky Agreement. And then in art historical texts, it's you know, the artist contract, or Siegelob is the only one mentioned. So I'm going to say Siegelob-Projansky Agreement as kind of a way of harmonizing. Um, the, the fact that it does have a very rich history in both art and law. Um, so the Siegelob-Projansky Agreement sought to address a number of rights desired by artists that were unmet by legislated law in the U.S. at the time of its making, 1971. Uh, most controversial among these rights were moral rights and a resale right um, 
and above all, uh, the agreement really sought to provide artists with a written legal instrument uh, that would enable them to maintain a relationship to their work once it had left their possession, feeling that, as Siegelab wrote, should there ever be a question about an artist's rights in reference to their work, the artist is more right than anyone else. Um, so the Siegelab-Perjansky agreement was inspired by other existing artist contracts, um, including one by artist Daniel Buren that concerned moral rights, and artist Ed Keinholz, whose contract had very extensive and explicit terms um, regarding the artist's right uh, to a portion of any resale profits. Um, and actually, it includes a clause um, where Keenholz would receive a 15% interest um, on any gross profits of the resale of a work. Um, and it actually goes through extremely explicit terms um, about how that percentage is supposed to be calculated and dispersed, and even calls um, for a portion of the contract to potentially be affixed to the work itself. Um, so the contract was, or the, the Siegelab-Bujanski agreement was also a direct product of the activities and platform of the activist group, the Art Workers Coalition, uh, active from 69 to 71, with artists at the April 1969 open hearing stating desired terms that would later form a blueprint of the contract. So, you know, here's Carl Andre, artists should attach by need conditions to the sale of their work, such conditions should include the condition work that the work may not be resold, no owner may enrich himself through the possession of a work of art, etc. cetera. Uh, here's Sala Witt, the artist would be consulted when his work is displayed, reproduced, or used in any way. Museum collector or publication would compensate the artist for use of their art. It's a rental beyond the purchase price. Um, and here's uh, Seth Siegelob's statement from the open hearing, essentially calling upon artists uh, not only to you know, convey a political critique in the content of their work, but to really instrumentalize the art object, you know, in whatever kind of political or economic critique they're enacting. Uh, so in 1970, Siegelob began devising a draft contract and questionnaire for the needs of artists from such a contract. Um, and in the actual questionnaire, he distributed, I think, you know, the number in the questionnaire anyway is 500 artists. There aren't that many responses, but it was widely distributed at the time. Um, and so the, the Artists Reserve Rights Transfer and Sale Agreement in its final version was completed in February 71, uh, which apparently was the product of like just a couple days of real crazed work between him and Perjansky, which is kind of funny. Um, but it was distributed as a poster and in the pages of numerous art magazines, um, as well as the catalog for Document of Five, and you can see it's, you know, in, in this format anyway that it was distributed, it kind of folded up into one eight and a half by 11 sheet. And on the back is the agreement form, which would be signed. And this is the portion down here um, that would actually be affixed to the work. Um, so what does the contract do? Uh, the agreement is designed to give the artist 15% of any increase in the value of each work each time it is transferred in the future. It grants the artist a record of who owns the work at any given time. It calls for the artist to be notified when the work is exhibited so they can advise upon an exhibition or veto the exhibition of their work. Um, it 
grants the artist a right to borrow the work for exhibition for two months every five years at no cost to the owner. It grants the artist the right to be consulted if repairs become necessary, grants them half of any rental income uh, to the owner for use of the work at exhibitions, uh, and grants the artist all reproduction rights in the work. Um, and again, this is, it's, it's from 71, and so a number of the, of the terms in the agreement really just were lacking in, in copyright law at the time, and, and many of them were then kind of made up for the revision of copyright law in 76 and then further in 1990. Um, but one thing that's really important to note about the you know, proposed function of the contract and design of the contract um, is that it was also really meant to create and clarify a non-exploitative relationship or a one-to-one -one relationship between artist and collector. Um, and Siegelob even notes that it gives certain rights to the owner, um, a certified history and provenance of the work, for example. Uh, in, in another portion of the introduction, uh, Siegelob proposes that artists might want to share a portion of that 15% with dealers, uh, really in exchange for uh, facilitating the sale of their work. Um, so uh, just I think one thing that kind of gets lost, I think, in the history of this document, which is very important, actually, is really like just how malleable it was and just how much it was envisioned to, I don't know, not only be malleable, but also kind of be about the direct relation that occurs between artist, dealer, collector, and really to open up the possibilities for negotiation. Um, so the, and again, the broader principles of the contract um, are to remedy some generally acknowledged inequities in the art world, particularly lack of control of artists' use of their work, or artists' participation in their work after it, they no longer own it. Um, it's also expected to be a standard form uh, that could be used for really any kind of artist. Um, that was its intent anyway. Um, and again, it can be used, presented here, or altered. Um, and above all, it was a, quote, a tool that existed for, a, a tool for what has never existed before, nothing. So there are some legal issues, though, with the contract. For example, you know, it, basically the resale royalty is supposed to apply to every future sale. Um, there isn't a way to do that uh, <laughs> unless every future owner of the work essentially signs a new contract with the artist. So the artist, legally anyway, needs to enter a new contractual relationship with every future collector. Um, is it almost as if it's a new sale every time? Uh, it's been said that there's such an imbalance in the market that it, it gives too much power, or it, it basically is impossible for artists of kind of a lesser level of power to actually negotiate at this level. Um, some have even had said that it perpetuates uh, speculation by not resisting speculation in the art market. Um, there are a number of other issues actually that we could go into. Um, and there have been a number of kind of revised versions of the Siegelob-Projansky agreement and a, a rich history of kind of artist contracts that have followed this too. Um, so in it, uh, Robert Projansky actually made a revised version of the contract on his own that really just, it had all the same terms, but the, the language was very, very simplified and condensed, um, really just in response to the fact that 
it was his impression anyway that uh, it was too complicated and collectors didn't want to touch it for just almost like a language reason. Um, Charles Juris wrote a, a revised version of the same contract, uh, which keeps most of the same terms, except the resale right only applies to the first sale, the first resale, I should say. Um, there you go, only up to the first transfer. Uh, artist Mary Beth Edelson has come up with an extensively modular contract uh, which can be apparently applied to artist residencies or teaching or, you know, panels uh, and then installations or video and you know, can be used to intellectual for, for, to address intellectual property concerns. Um, makes clear all financial obligations of contracting parties. Uh, and even includes this kind of interesting warning against uh, commercial photographers signing away their IP rights. Anyway, it's very extensive. Um, uh, of course, digital art contracts are kind of a growing concern, not just for artists, but you know, the, the, there are a number of kind of efforts being made right now to figure out a way to do this, quite frankly. Um, so this is one solution that artist Raphael Rosendahl came up with. Um, and it does contain a resale royalty, but no, oh, I'm sorry, it does, it does have this, um, a section for a resale right, but there's no royalty that Rosendahl would receive. But uh, he does stipulate that he should be basically involved again in every kind of future sale um, and that every future owner should sign on to the contract really more with the eye to maintaining provenance um, than a royalty. Um, employed at the nude art fair, uh, the negotiated resale right would provide the artist with a percentage of the profits derived from the first resale of his or her own works. Um, and this is designed as uh, kind of a hybrid between the work of a collecting society and a negotiated contract. Um, it's available to artists and collectors on a case-by-case -case basis and opt-in kind of process. Um, I'm sure people here can speak to this agreement very closely. Um, when we all talk, uh, it's a very apt example because it's been used at the Nude Art Fair in, again in like 2014 and 2015. Um, Adrian Piper has used a version of the Siegelob contract uh, since 97. Uh, although she's left out uh, the provision for the resale right, but has kept the, no uh, the provision to be notified of future transfers. Uh, and in many ways, her logic for leaving out the resale royalty and you know, some of the controls around exhibition context um, are really much more to do with uh, just the level of administrative oversight that that would require on her part. And she said pretty explicitly that it just out, outside of her capacity to really manage uh, the level of control that you know, an ideal contract like the Siegel contract would require. Um, which kind of raises a really interesting point uh, that you know, while a contractual solution might be an effective way of articulating in artist's terms, um, is it in many ways necessary for actually enforcing those terms, the actual requirements upon an individual artist to upkeep all of the business aspect of just this part of their operation uh, might simply be out of reach or just really um, beyond the scope of what they can manage. Um, which kind of opens up, I think, a very important question about, you know, maybe we should 
maybe this is an argument in favor of having you know, a royalties collecting society or having other levels of uh, regulation in place on a sheer administrative level. Um, but beyond uh, practical concerns, I think it's really worth mentioning to the, really the radicality of these contractual solutions and the legacy um, of the Siegelob-Perjansky agreement, um, particularly in enacting, like, again, continual social, legal, economic, and um, all broadly defined institutional critique, yes. Um, so traditionally, uh, there's been a conceptual divide between a product or object of exchange and the contract governing ex terms of exchange. Um, yet, uh, contract scholar Margaret Radin has noted that the idea of a collapse of the product contract distinction has become a dominant theory in economic legal analysis, such that the contract is now understood to become part of the product or contract as product. Um, as she writes, contract as product collapses two conceptual categories, object uh, and a text referring to an object into one amalgam that obliterates the distinction between text and object. In this dominant economic view, contract terms no longer comprise a separate textual object or artifact that is the repository of independent free wills coming together in exchange, but instead the terms become part of a product. Um, these observations on the contract as product might recall, uh, sorry, I'm getting art historian hat here, <laughs> uh, what Alexander Albero and Janine Tang have um, observed of Siegelob's contract, and particularly its clause requiring the affixing of a notice to the back of an affected artwork, which serves to conjoin both the commercial function uh, and political critique enacted by the contract with the art object itself. So that it allows it to circulate as a commodity one that carries with it a constant critique um, in its exchange through a marketplace. Um, there's a real kind of radical reversal of power that occurs uh, by virtue of the fact that the Siegelob-Pergiancy Agreement and the other contracts I've mentioned are boilerplate or standard form contracts. Um, historically, such contracts uh, are implemented by the party in, basically in a greater position of industry power. Um, so an artist actually being the one to administer contracts, really, and boilerplate contracts specifically, uh, is almost like an appropriation of that level of, of higher industry power by the party who's generally in a lower position of power. Um, finally, there's one uh, symbolic and practical significance to the Siegelob-Pergiancy agreement that I'll mention here, um, and that's its legacy as a private contract that has actually come to influence legislated law. Uh, in the hearings surrounding the Waxman and Kennedy bills and the Copyright Office's 92 and 2013 reports, the agreement was discussed as evidence that there would be additional rights desired by artists that were not met by American legislated law. Its consistent citation, I think, really serves as proof um, you know, of this idea that you know, what's, what becomes legislated may in fact be a bottom-up rather than a top-down process um, in which contracting individuals actively negotiate for themselves their preferred terms of, well, transaction, cooperation, and governance. Um, but it also means, and, and I've pulled this quote uh, for this reason, is that artists' rights legislation might not be a complete solution. Um, rather, the solution might be one that requires the impl implementation of contractual agreements, as well as the maintenance of social relations and uh, kind of best practices, um, 
as a really an idea of, of working towards self-regulation or, or self-governance over our field. Um, and one that could be potentially reinforced by federal regulation. Um, so I, I want to just kind of begin to conclude uh, by mentioning at least one alternative that might exist between state regulation and private law um, and look at industry self-regulation and this idea of self-determined best practices. Um, so it's really kind of no coincidence that the event has been organized by a working group of WAGE, which has established a form of self-regulated best practices within a field where before there were none. Uh, whether, whether legislatures will take a cue from this effort, the WAGE certification, um, remains to be seen, but in the meantime, WAGE certification is active as a new kind of third model to begin to look to. Um, and that's again to clarify that, you know, we're, we're just interested in kind of using this event and using this conversation to lay out all possible models. And I think one thing that prefaces this event importantly is this kind of idea that's emerged now of um, a possibility of maybe what, what self-regulation or an idea of best practices in the field could look like. Um, yeah, what do we make of all of this? Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to guess a lot of people in the room recognize this, but maybe not. This was, uh, and maybe somebody else can fill in more details than I can, but essentially last year there was um, one of these works by Wade Guyton was going up at auction, and just before the auction he posted this photo from his studio of clearly almost endless copies of the exact same painting. Um, you know, kind of raising a lot of questions around, you know, the 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 rare object logic or, you know, the logic of scarcity uh, or the logic of the aura of a work of art and, you know, wherever we want to take that. Um, so the kind of, some of the bigger questions at stake are really, you know, are there simply larger issues uh, that come with having such an out-of-control contemporary art market, an auction market? Um, scarcity is probably not the right way to frame uh, visual art objects anymore. Um, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Um, and maybe we should just instead regard them as portable, transferable assets, um, which demand maybe other kinds of regulation. Uh, and then, you know, how relevant is this to contemporary art practices at all? You know, if there isn't any kind of dominant, you know, singular media anymore, or, or we don't even really know how to define a visual work of art anymore in terms of media specificity. Um, I don't know, but it, basically there's, there's a lot of questions that I think we can start to inch through uh, as we talk. So yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, basically we're just going to dive into conversation here. I'll kind of get us started. Um, but uh, as we said in the beginning, too, I think, you know, folks, you know, once, once we've been talking for a while, we do really want to open this up to the people in the room, too. Um, so just to start, I'm, I think I'm, I'm really first reminded that uh, recurrent, you know, in a lot of our discussions leading up to the panel, um, is the idea that calling the resale royalty a right 
uh, has a particular weight to it um, that kind of seems to surpass, uh, you know, critiques about participating in speculation in a negative sense and on and on. Um, and instead, using the term right affirms that the receipt of royalties is in fact an economic right or a labor right. Um, and yet could also be criticized as granting artists special property rights that are not available to other makers of unique or limited edition objects. Um, I, and I wonder, you know, if framing of these issues as a right um, has special significance to those of you on the panel. Um, and uh, certainly for Justice Jaffe, um, if there are additional legal complications that come with granting the special property right of resale rights to visual artists. Maybe we can kind of open up with this idea of the right. Well, certainly calling it a right mm -hmm. uh, lends it a lot more cachet than not calling it a right. Mm -hmm. But um, I sometimes wonder uh, whether artists, um, actually, there, there are a few points that I, I wanted to make yeah. at the start. Uh, first, that the December 2013 report, everybody should read. It, it is uh, a wonderful compendium of commentary, the pros and cons of the resale rights. Um, one of the commentators noted that fine art is the last bastion of an unregulated industry. Um, everything is regulated today. Do artists really want their trade regulated? It's a, a question that you have to ask yourselves. Because don't forget, when you have regulation, you get, and Hans could probably talk more about this than I could, but you have the government coming in and looking at what you're doing and examining it and the IRS and all those other wonderful things. <laughs> now, maybe it's worth it. I'm sure that many people would say, I, I have no view. Uh, I am totally neutral on this topic, but I think it's something that you have to think about. Because artists are different than people who sell eggs. Uh, and then there's the issue with the contract. For a lawyer, there's no contract that can't be gotten around. That's what lawyers are paid for and that's what they're good. It's kind of like a prenuptial agreement. Uh, everybody thinks, oh, if I get my prospective spouse to enter into a prenup, I'll have no problem later on when we get divorced. Right? Wrong. <laughs> Every prenup, no matter how bomb-proof, is litigated. And every contract is litigated. And the good thing about this legislation is that it takes away some of the litigation by making it mandatory, mm -hmm. by making it a matter of law. All you're going to really argue about are certain of the little terms. So you save a lot of money on lawyers, which is a good thing for everybody. Uh, so. That's, of course, they, they nonetheless, they argued about the California statute, but mm -hmm. mostly only about its constitutionality. Mm -hmm. So these are uh, a couple of things that an artist has to think about. But I think that in reading the materials, I was left, uh, the thing that re resonated most with me was what Adam Gopnik said in The New Yorker, which was that at least let's le leave a tip for the chef. <laughs> that, that, seemed, that, that had some resonance. Yeah. But that's what I think about, what artists should think about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Let me come last. I think I sure. think Oz should go first. <laughs> You're you more grounded in the subject, maybe. Uh, Judge Jaffe uh, pointed out uh, several potential problems, and I must admit I never thought about those. You're not in court. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a lawyer. I, I don't have to experience in that field, and uh, we, uh, naively I would say regulation is something that I'm nervous about. Mm. On the other hand, uh, if uh, I have to litigate, uh, not only is, is it burdensome, it is very expensive, and of course you can lose, even though you think you are right. Uh, and if instead there is a law that, I, uh, that will do the litigation for me, uh, I have uh, some advantage. Now, I'm using the uh, uh, Siegelop-Projansky contract. I have been doing it uh, since uh, 1971 uh, with occasional problems. But uh, I like to believe, and you um, may correct me because you have a better sense of the law than I do. Uh, there is uh, what I view a great leverage in it in so far as if there is uh, a resale that is not uh, observing uh, the terms of the contract. As long as the contract is specifically in its terms, part of the work that is being resold, in quotation marks, then the new owner will have to face the problem that the creator, the artist, will say, this is not a work of mine. You paid a lot of money for nothing. And that, in turn, can perhaps um, alert sellers that such a problem could occur and they observe the contract. Is that, uh, would that play in the law as we know it? Who knows, <laughs> but it sounds mighty good. <laughs> All right, I, I feel like after reading the contract over again uh, that the contract itself is like, I mean, this, 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 the whole thing with the thing uh -huh. is like a painting or something in a historical, <laughs> I, I don't know, scene that is really feels incredibly dated right now. Yeah. Um, and I think that the whole situation has become very different now with the auction and what's happening. And the thing that it, I would I would say the way to focus a good way to focus, I, not artist rights, but the right of the art. I feel mm -hmm. the art is not the artist. You sell it, it's gone. Mm -hmm. But I am worried about how difficult these incredible prices that are being paid is making it for public institutions and museums to borrow mm -hmm. art and to even insure it. 
And I do think that there will be, also the other thing is that, that going back to this illustration you used, it is the child of the artist that's mm -hmm. most damaged. I mean, they have to pay a state tax on art based on these auction prices. Right. And that's, I do think, really unjust. I mean, for families that are left behind to suddenly have to be paying the price tax-wise, basically for, for, for gambling, I guess, speculation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's where I think I, I would yeah. be interested in. It's interesting in a way because you're, you're reminding me of, you know, of course there's also been, you know, spurts of other proposed legislation that would allow artists to donate their works to museums and actually get a write-off for the, for the sale value of the work, right, instead of just the value of materials, which is what's on the books now. Um, but it's interesting because one argument, if I was to apply your logic to that, there would also be an argument that, you know, then if a law were passed that would allow artists to collect the sale value of their work as a tax write-off, that would also help just the top tier of yeah, artists instead I mean, of others. a lot of work can interested. be done in, in tax yeah. regulations and law, I think. Yeah, yeah. Does it seem like that's almost a more, it, by your experience, um, I guess what I'm, what I'm hearing from you is that the resale right, or the resale royalty, let's just call it, um, it's maybe a, a, quite an inappropriate solution in many ways, and we should put efforts towards tax regulation in a broader yeah, scale. Yeah, common law, I or, guess. There mm -hmm. was some, they made, you made that the difference between common Yeah. that. It should be for, for the betterment of museums and mm -hmm. you know, the public, and, but it's becoming increasingly cost prohibitive because of these options. So mm -hmm. I think that's unfair to the art and, and families and that I so but I, I think there has to be a sudden kind of rush to update and get our yeah. bearing on what's happening fiscally now mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. another complete situation from when that was written mm -hmm. yeah yeah so I'm, I'm curious then to hear more of your remark on being wary of regulation as you said um, or if that seems related to Rebecca's comment or no, but uh, no. I, I would like to respond to what you say. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe there are two different issues. Uh, on the one hand, you, you correctly point out, I believe, that the heirs, children and others, uh, are potentially in a, in a bind uh, and that in comparison to that, the artist during uh, her and his lifetime mm -hmm. do not get more than the material value, mm -hmm. namely the, the price of canvas if it is mm -hmm. a painter. Mm -hmm. uh, if they donate it to a, a non-profit uh, uh, organization, mm -hmm. that is in fact very unjust, unfair, and uh, that should be taken care of. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I believe uh, way back that uh, uh, was the case and then the law changed and all of a sudden uh, one couldn't do that. And well, I remember I so... Owners can, I think, if you own owners work, can. Yes, they yes, get a tax yes, deduction, yes, the yes, artists yes, don't. Precisely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I will never forget 
to see an exhibition, a group show at the Guggenheim Museum. Mm -hmm. There were two paintings of the same size hanging next to each other. Mm -hmm. One was an Andy Warhol, the other one was a Lichtenstein. Mm -hmm. The Lichtenstein had been donated by Andy Warhol to the museum. <laughs> the Warhol, That's funny. Uh, the other way. Uh -huh. And they overcame this hurdle. Yeah. Very cleverly. Yeah. Right? Maybe a lawyer told them this is how yeah, you do it. I like it. That happens. I think that happens. <laughs> yeah. Where there's a will and a loophole, there's yeah. a way. So I, on, on the one hand, there's yeah. the, this, uh, this uh, problem that you point out, but uh, I'm not sure whether this ha should affect the, the resale issue. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. I mean, they seem, they seem unrelated in some way, but in terms of, they're related in the sense of a much bigger conversation yeah. about regulating also, the art market. But it's the issue of, is it the artist or is it the art? I mean, mm. they're mm -hmm. not buying the artist, they're buying an object. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that, and that, that to me is really a profound place of, I guess, jurisdiction and law of philosophy, I guess, where that ends, mm -hmm. that edge. Mm -hmm. Well, it's certainly more cohesive with the structure of, mm -hmm. of U.S. law, right? Yeah. Thinking of this, the, these things as, as property, right? Right. Um, individual a objects. a proud tradition yeah. in American law where property rights are more important than anything else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. how it is here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, given that, is it... Is it just fundamental that, <laughs> and, and this, is, this is what's so strange about the fact in a way that we have the Visual Artists' Rights Act, right, that we have moral rights. Um, it's a huge progressive step in yeah. terms of American law, and I think we're heading that way as our country gets more progressive. It looks like, uh, well, certainly uh, Representative Nadler's bill has more support than it had when, mm -hmm. it when, when he came out with Eva, so I think... Mm -hmm. uh, Things are changing for the better for artists. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I wanna, while we're keeping on this kind of question of, of regulation or how things might be regulated or what alternatives might wanna be, uh, might be um, and of course thinking of you know, what is the art object at the end of the day, uh, it, it's kind of occurred to me again in our conversations and just in thinking about the history of you know, which artists have been involved in lobbying for a resale royalty and uh, which artists have, have used contracts instead um, or, or have used contracts. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the criticisms, I guess, or one of the observations, I should say, about the Siegel-Oprigiansky agreement is that it's really suited for works, and this is uh, the way your work is talked a lot about, Hans, in, in relation to the contract, that it's really suited for works that are already kind of aligned politically with the contract or where you know, collectors would sort of know what they're getting into. But it's maybe not, or, or it's maybe better suited for works that aren't sort of straightforward paintings, right? But I, I guess when I think about the history of the artists who have really done a lot of lobbying for the resale royalty bill, I mean, the biggest names that t sort of tend to come up are like, 
you know, the James Rosenquist and Rauschenberg, who made kind of more straightforward objects. Um, and so I, I bring this up in the context of questions around regulation to think about like whether there is even like a one, you know, one size fits all solution to these questions and whether we should just sort of leave that aside um, and think about having complementary, you know, maybe resale royalties, but also something like, like a contract solution for other kinds of art and artists. Um, and maybe Maxwell, that's something you can speak about in the context of the, the show that you did in January that dealt with the contract, um, or really anybody else. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, th I think it's worth uh, pointing out that one of the events that really led to Siegelob's development of the contract was not a uh, capital C conceptual artist work at all, mm -hmm. but a, a guy named Takis, right. um, who had yeah. work that was in some state of damage at MoMA. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, you know, you can't show that. It's messed up. And MoMA said, we can do whatever we want. It's ours now. Mm -hmm. um, and the Art Workers Coalition in Siegelob thought this was wrong. Um, Jackie Windsor also yeah. uh, used the contract for many years. Carl mm -hmm. Andre did. Um, and I, I think both the contract and artist resale rights needn't just apply to, uh, I don't know, a political artist or a conceptual artist. Uh, I mean, another way of framing this is to say, uh, I do believe that, you know, art, good art and bad art, does index our times. Mm -hmm. And the secondary market that Rebecca's referring to has really uh, been an inspiration to a lot of the art that gets made today. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, not, in, not always in the best ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and I even think that, you know, uh, I mean, I, I don't, maybe you can address this. Do you think that using the contract, that the restrictions of who does and doesn't buy your work have also been freedoms and inspirations and allowed you to make a different kind of work? I don't believe the contract has ever affected what comes to my mind mm -hmm. to, to produce yeah. as a work. No. Mm -hmm. Nor should it. But it might come to your mind if you're expecting a percentage at auction. I mean, that's a thing I, I, I would think would get in your mind. <laughs> well, doesn't this come... Uh, 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 more recently, something has cropped uh, uh, at uh, an auction and uh, that didn't affect me uh, in didn't. thinking about the, the future and what I should do now. Mm -hmm. mm. I think it would affect me. Yeah. I mean, mm. I don't think I want to be attached to that, really. I, I never hmm. think about... Uh, you don't. Uh, you're pure. <laughs> no, no, no. no, no, no I, Does, I, doesn't I, this reveal the tension yeah. that yeah. everybody feels between art and commerce? Yeah. But I don't think it's necessarily black and white. There must be yeah. a way of harmonizing art and commerce so that artists are not just artisans, but really artists who shouldn't have to think about feeding their families. Yeah. But I, realistically, I don't think that's the problem right now. The problem is more artists who are doing probably 
fine, basically, uh, that we're talking about at these, the, the, in, what's going on is huge. It's very destabilizing everything in all the systems. Uh, and I think that there's going to be kind of, have to be a kind of scramble to. And it's the globalization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. right. But I wonder what Robert Skull was thinking now. I mean, if he's still alive, he missed the boat, didn't he? <laughs> he sold too early. He sold too early. Or he was just the first domino, you know. Yeah, but I, I, I will say, yeah. looking at, at auction results, uh, um, putting something at auction especially of an artist who's been primarily active in the last 15, 20 years, putting something at auction makes, that, makes the work more expensive. Mm -hmm. Almost right away. Let's say I sell art and it's $10,000, and I've sold it for $10,000 for five years, and then it's $12,000, and then it's $15,000. There's a very clear ladder, and a slow regulated ladder, and somehow by luck, nothing comes up at auction. And something then does come up at auction. There's a very clear habit, which is the first thing sells for about what it, I would sell it for, maybe three, four thousand dollars more. But then the second piece is like forty. The third piece is fifty. The fourth piece is a hundred and fifty. And then it settles at this eighty thousand dollar range. So auctions and the nature of auctions do in fact determine um, you know, how much something is worth. And then I've yeah. seen it with so many yeah. artists. It affects how artists make work. Uh, maybe they do less. I mean, I saw this, this phenomenon with a lot of artists in the last five years where when their work started selling for high volumes, they stopped selling their art. Or they would do shows where nothing was for sale. Or they would mm -hmm. do shows where 12 paintings are one piece. Or paintings too big to fit in anyone's home. And this is what I mean. That, 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 that art is an index of its times. Um, and I'd rather uh, the secondary market be alleviated so the times that the art is indexing is not just about the art market, but other aspects of our life that need addressing. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. no, what, what, no, what do you mean? So um, <laughs> I'd, prefer, I'd prefer my artists not be worried about their auction records. Oh, okay. yeah. You know? Which, I, I'd yeah. prefer that that not then interfere and affect and guide, you know, the work that they're making. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, mm -hmm. if we look at the history, at the time when the uh, Siglop for Jansi uh, contract was designed mm -hmm. and uh, was in fact adopted by uh, a number of artists of the period, at th in those days, none of these artists had any expectation that their works would ever appear in an auction. That's right. Yeah. And when you read the the uh, the, the, the introduction to the, uh, that uh, Siegelhoff and Projansky wrote yeah. to their thing, they speak about the collector as their friend, and of I course yeah, they would. That's right. Uh, it was a very different uh, world, and Skull. Mm -hmm. Uh, was not typical for these artists. Mm -hmm. if, if, I'm, if I may, I, I think that's a really, it's one of my favorite parts about the uh, contract. Um, it's, I think it's under a, a, a section called like dealer. 
And and Siegelob says something like, you know, your dealer is going to tell you this isn't going to work, or maybe it will work. Um, he's going to, and then he or she will tell you the reason it's not going to work is not because of me, but because the collector won't do it. And then Siegelob says, there's only two kinds of people that want to buy artist work: the artist friend, or not the artist friend. Uh, and the artist friend, and I think he says 75% of the people that buy an artist's work are the artist friend. They're going to have no problem signing because they like your work. They're going to want to cherish it. And the other 25%, the dealer can incentivize it to them. He, can, he or she can give them more time or a bigger discount or access to other works. Um, now, of course, those percentages are so different now. You know, that 75% is such a smaller, smaller margin. And, and it is my belief, whether it's the contract or, or legislation, might serve as, you know when you're bowling, you can put those, if you're a bad bowler, you put those things in the side. Yeah. You know, they, it's, it's, it can help shift those percentages back. You know, and if in fact, uh, we lose secondary market sales, because there are laws. If, in fact, we lose primary market sales, if things don't sell for a million dollars anymore, um, I think it could be okay. I mean, I don't know how forward you feel, you, you feel comfortable <laughs> with talking about. You know, you probably haven't, I mean, you know, I can't think of anyone as, as good as you, um, frankly. <laughs> but you've probably sold less art than some of your colleagues who don't use the contract. And I, and, of course. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, right, do you have regrets in that way? You know? No. 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 I mean, as I always say, I'm stubborn. Yeah. Either you play it yeah. along my rules, or you can't have it. Forget about it. Good attitude. Now, the, the, you can afford that only if you are not dependent on the sale of your work. And for all these, since 1971, I was not because I had a teaching job. I had a salary. And therefore, I could say, oh, okay, either you play it along my rules or, or not. Yeah. It doesn't affect me. Or I'm, I'm not dependent. I, I would be richer, maybe stinking rich, but... Uh, uh, I don't really need it. I can pay my rent, I can survive, so forth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think this is the way in which maybe the conditions of working artists as we talk about them now? Because you were sort of indicating, uh, I don't know, that either that artists are comfortable now or maybe that conditions for working artists have changed a bit. Well, I just think that the, mm -hmm. the, the site of crisis right now is is, mm -hmm. is not your basic collector-dealer relationship, right. but this other other thing that is really completely shifting the whole mm -hmm. way everything, all the friendships are structured, I guess, yeah. speaking of right. friends. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I, I, think, I think of my work, I definitely tried to embed the rules with the work that it goes with the work. There mm -hmm. aren't any rules mm -hmm. with left. 
and hopefully, because it's it's hopefully going, you know, go into time. You hope. Yeah. I mean, I hope, but I'm just like much more traditional artist than Hans. I'm just a painter, so I mean, I'm really <laughs> conservative in that way. But when it comes to other kinds of art forms, uh -huh. all these questions become much more complicated. I think. I wonder if we should open it up to the room. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, good night, everyone. Uh, I will speak on behalf of uh, collectors that share the same ideas myself. I'm not only afraid of, uh, not only concerned about the royalties that you guys uh, are questioning in this contract. But I think that uh, we do have to regulate this market. I would make a, a very radical uh, uh, say here that uh, there are a few markets that are unregulated instead of uh, that this is the only market not that should be regulated. There is the uh, drug trafficking. <laughs> uh, arms trafficking, uh, people trafficking, human organs trafficking, and the art market. So, do you want to be side by side with these markets? This would be the first question. Second, uh, I'm definitely convinced that this is an asset class. Okay? As being an asset class, uh, this also has to be regulated, like uh, any financial market. For example, after these several crises we had, uh, FX market has been regulated, equity market has been regulated somehow, okay? And we continue to have no regulation in the art market. So, for example, we have, been, we have problems uh, regarding markups from dealers to uh, secondary market dealers to, to collectors. Is a 30% markup acceptable in, the, in Wall Street? I don't think so. You get arrested. In the art market, it's very possible. And if you read the news, there are quite a few 30% markups. Um, second thing, uh, inside information in museums. I belong to one important museums in the acquisition committee. I have privileged information. Uh, nowadays, we have uh, multiples in video art, in photography, or in prints. So a museum can buy uh, our work, and you can go the next day to the dealer and say, I want to buy this one too. So should we have uh, a window where we are in a, let's say, a conflicted, and we cannot buy, we have to disclose? This is another question. And, uh, for example, uh, the other thing regarding the, the royalties, uh, you guys talked about uh, museums uh, loan, uh, lending artworks to other museums. Should this also have, uh, should be affected towards the resale, right? Because this is a royalty, it's an income to a museum. Therefore, if there is an income, should have an income to the artist too. 
I think I, I have more points, but I, I, I bring later. <laughs> I think I, I talked enough. Yeah, I agree entirely there ought to be some regulation, but not on the back of the artists. Uh, that's, that's number one, and that's, I think, very important here. The, the resale royalty is a form of regulation. It, it would be a law that states, it's a regulation, rule, call it what you may, that the artist is entitled to a certain uh, return on the resale of his work, and is no different in that respect from a composer whose works are played later in life. So to that, from that point of view, I'm in favor of regulation. But again, there's too much of a tendency to kind of put the weight on the artist uh, who's struggling enough as it is. And um, so I just, that's the point I wanted to make. Thank you. Um, thank you to everyone for sharing. Um, it's really amazing to hear such different perspectives on this situation. Um, but I have a question for Maxwell. Um, my question is why in 2015 or 2014 uh, did you decide to use a contract from the 1970s? And why not um, try to think about a new way of negotiating these, the sales? I became thoroughly, uh, I became thoroughly by myself involved in the work of Maria Eichhorn, um, an important artist to me, and she led to it. Um, additionally, an artist that I started working with um, kind of, uh, I mean, we were earlier, uh, uh, Judge Jaffe was talking about property. Um, and there's a long history in America of what's wrong with property. Um, everyone has their own connotations about this. Um, I actually think that Pedro's comments about what the art market is parallel to uh, are indicative. Um, and, and anyway, this, this artist's work, some of his work is not for sale at all. It's only for rent. Um, and people went for it. Uh, so that was somewhat inspiring to me that I that I, I could enable the contract to be used. Um, also, I just uh, I feel a great deal of um, guilt. Uh, I, I got a lot of emails from collectors today that said, "Oh, we're going to get vilified, aren't we?" Um, I I think a big part of the problem is the dealers. I really do. Um, not only do dealers sell their own artist's work at auction, they do it primary. Um, and there's a whole new class of collectors that are collector dealers. Um, and uh, Like Saatchi. Like Saatchi, right. Right. Um, so, I, yeah, that's, I guess that's the best I can... Uh, oh, oh, uh, but specifically, I mean, maybe part of your question, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is why not draft a new model? Why return to this thing from 71? Um, and I guess that's, uh, my thought about that is a broader 
critique of the emptying out of conceptual arts format, uh, uh, a kind of emptying the bottle. So it still looked like conceptual art from the 70s, but all of the political ramifications, both of the art and the artists, had been abandoned. Um, and we had too many uh, uh, apolitical artists and apolitical artworks. And it's also yeah. in interesting temporally to, to, you know, put something now with that document that is so historic and it is art history. And so it had this kind of richness in that way that you could kind of, you know, think about what, what, what object attached to that historical moment <laughs> in a sense, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, conceptual art is not just about the fun of ideas. It's anti-property. It's anti-objects. Now, some of that might have failed. Um, or not to say it failed, because I don't think the contract failed exactly. I think it influenced a number of laws. Um, but, but I think there is, you know, political and ethical baggage in conceptual art that we can return to and, and you know, I, I guess I should say luggage, not baggage. <laughs> you know, there's luggage that we can, you know, good luggage you can use a long time. <laughs> we can afford it. Right. You can afford it. Right. True. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure yeah. whether it is uh, necessary or justified to tie uh, the Brzezinski Seelock contract mm -hmm. to this particular era and to tie it to either conceptual art or to socially <laughs> engaged art. Mm -hmm. If you read it, it yeah. speaks about uh, a label to be pasted on the I work. And, yeah. and in a case uh -huh. of doubt, you yeah. think of the back of a painting or uh, a yeah. back of uh, a drawing, uh, a traditional object. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, can't, uh, you never could do it uh, to sculptures. That, mm. That's very difficult. Mm -hmm. And of course, it would be very difficult uh, to do it on a Tony Siegel. But uh, it is not uh, wed to this particular era and, this, uh, and the works that uh, came mm -hmm. out of the, the Siegel up and conceptual mm -hmm. art uh, right. uh, realm. Yeah. But I like that point by that woman you were uh, quoting in the end of your, your talk that said that it is this kind of uh, putting the caption, it's putting a text. Mm -hmm. And then that, that okay. just but act yeah. changes mm -hmm. the artwork. Mm -hmm. I like that point. I, th I thought that was interesting. Too. Yeah. Although I, I, and I think, I mean, I think that is a really important legacy of the contract, or it's an important yeah. way that it's been historicized, I should say. Mm -hmm. And I, and and you're right. You're absolutely right about this clarification that you know when certainly when the contract was introduced, it was meant for you know any kind of artist to use it. And yes, Jackie Windsor makes these. I mean, the works, from my understanding, that came with the contract are these, you know, very slowly made, large wooden sculptures, mm -hmm. very kind of tactile, very physical objects, right? So, absolutely. Well, um, Rauschenberg could have used it if it had been around. Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
But I think what's interesting, though, in, in the way, maybe it's that in the way we've come to think about how it's operated historically. It's a problem with the history of it. Rather than well, the that's the interesting thing about yeah. it now, is the history of it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I like that history. <laughs> but it's, it's come to be seen as yeah. something that's only viable, you know, for artists. At least this is a common criticism, or this is a common observation, I think, that I've come across, that it's come to be seen as only viable, you know, for artworks that are, you know, asking some... That, that seemed to explicitly be asking some kind of similar political or publication or something like this. Yeah. Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's one circumstance I think is, is fascinating, uh, a, a fascinating use of it. Uh, Carl Andre, somewhat mm -hmm. into his uh, um, uh, success as an artist, did a show where a variety of types of Andre sculptures um, were for sale either by the foot or by the yard. Yeah. Uh, and you paid uh, according to your income. I, I can't remember if it was one month's salary per foot or I think it was one month's salary per foot, no matter what you made. Um, and Andre, who otherwise never used the Siegelob contract or any kind of resale regulation did in this circumstance. Um, and therein, maybe, you know, more resale royalties makes things less, expense, uh, uh, less expensive, but maybe resale royalties could open up, you know, to think like a capitalist, new markets. Uh -huh. To think like a communist, you know, open up art for the masses. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Well, it seems like it's, you know, part of like a I don't know, some mythic story that's like come up against, uh, you know, the, the ability for an artist to negotiate contractual terms or something like this. Like uh, saying, you know, beginning the history with this premise that only certain artists are ever going to be able to get away with this document or get away with negotiating their rights basically, you know, assumes that most artists either aren't interested in that or aren't capable of that, you know, if they. You know, I, I guess I'm thinking of more kind of straightforward. You know, again, this is this is the characterization that often gets made for artists, well, painters. I mean, maybe you can speak to this too. Um, that or where am I going with this? Well, I it's think a, I it's, think it's, it's interesting that other countries are doing yeah. it. So many other countries are doing it, and then I'm like, well, why yeah. aren't we doing it then? But then yeah. I do think it's also small countries are doing it, and it's kind of nationalistic pride. I think. Maybe a little bit at, at the root, and also just a better cultural embrace of contemporary art in other mm -hmm. countries. I mean, America is just famously Protestant and not and not mm -hmm. pro pro art. I mean, mm -hmm. and suspicious of art. I mean, so I think maybe that that the, that there's a kind of nationalism a little bit and pride in one's, you know the French artists are being taken care of kind of thing. Right. Maybe. Right. Because that, that was like, well, if they're getting it, we should maybe get it. But, mm -hmm. yeah. I just also think that, the, that we're in a moment of real change right now, and it's hard to even know where where to stand, or where, where you want to stand legally in this situation. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to address one issue to take us a bit off topic, but hopefully bring us back to the topic of resale. We're talking a little bit about 
um, tax incentives and the fact that you can only currently uh, uh, get the materials price for, uh, for a work that you donate to a museum. But there is a bill that maybe some of you know that Senator Leahy put uh, up to the Congress in April to reverse that to get uh, the fair market value for the price of the work of art. So I guess my point is there are those issues are being concurrently, dis, you know, sort of worked out, and so yeah. the resale wouldn't take away from the fact right. that those those issues are also currently being addressed yep. by the art market. And probably that would strengthen those other arguments too. Mm -hmm. I assume. So. Uh, uh, the gentleman over here raised the issue of uh, regulation. And I think one of the most, um, I'm not sure this is of any benefit to the artist, but the most unregulated aspect of the art market is its overall opaqueness in terms of pricing. Uh, the, there's no concept, uh, particularly if we're now viewing art as an asset class, there's no concept in connection with a transaction of there being full and fair disclosure. Uh, the, and just like the gentleman said, you really don't know off times, uh, you know, what type of a markup, and I'm more principally talking, I suppose, on secondary work, you know, that a, uh, you know, that a dealer is getting. So it's, uh, I mean, that's one thing that struck me in terms of uh, the unregulated aspect uh, of the market. And I would say the professionals or the business professionals not the artist professionals uh, in the market, uh, certainly don't want any change in that because, they, you know, uh, whatever the, those spreads are, that's, you know, that's their profit motive. Uh, and, you know, that's what America is about. And it is unregulated. Uh, the aspect of a royalty, I, I mean, I think the Nadler bill, I mean, it's, and I'd like for the to be a little bit more focused on the Nadler bill because it seems to be, you know, such a... You, you know, such a modest gesture uh, as to, you know, why that, and I understand the history of property rights and, and the like, and we have to talk about it also, I suppose, in connection, you know, with the Copyright Act. But the beauty about it is, of course, it has enforceability, and it's quite limited. I wouldn't worry about the definition of the artwork because that could be tinkered with, and we'll, it'll, be, it'll be more inclusive. Uh, but it's limited to, to the results of a public auction. Uh, and I think that issue really flows from enforceability. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, how are you going to regulate a lot of private transactions? Uh, the, and it also deals, if we're dealing with it on the federal level, it deals with the California problem. I mean, nobody's going to sell work in California anymore because as I understand the result of that action is, is that it was really just the extraterritoriality of that statute that they that, uh, you know, they eliminated under, you know, on, under the constitutionality issue. Two, two things. Yeah. Um, according to Representative Nadler, this is an incremental attempt. Yeah. He made it very clear at one point when he was questioned about why is it uh, restricted to auction houses. He said, no, don't worry. This is, we, we have to do it incrementally. And the other issue I remember from, from the uh, December 13th report I believe it, it, it stated, or somewhere I read, that uh, the, the California Resale Royalty Act is seldom invoked, and then it's very much underused. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. 
But I, I also think in terms of limiting it to an auction house, you have, it's like withholding tax. Uh, you, you know, you have a public payor uh, who is obligated, you know, paying that royalty and deducting it from the proceeds that are payable to the seller. So you have a self-enforcement implementation, and it'll be a great, it'll be, it'll, uh, it'll be a great first step. I, I think, you know, another issue which I don't think has been touched upon is why under the Copyright Act, has the visual artist really been, uh, 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 hasn't been covered, been eliminated? Because the, there's a conceptual background to that, but I think it's, you know, worthwhile, that, you know, flushing it out. Sure. The, the problem is that the Copyright Act, uh, in the first major one, 1906 and 1909, uh, was really focused on authors of books. Sorry. And so it said you had to register the work and you had to put a notice on the work when it was reproduced or what have you. And if you did those things, you had a copyright. And they went on to apply that awful system to all works of creation, including works of art, which required the artist to register, to fill out a form, to register and to send the registration to the copyright office and the time involved. A prolific author may publish one or two books a year. Let's talk about a very prolific author. An artist may create hundreds of works in a given year when you include sketches, drawings, and so on. It's virtually impossible for the artist to fulfill the needs of registration. And that rule existed unchanged till about 1976 when the second uh, uh, Copyright Act came into being. But still, in order to get what we call statutory damages, in case you sue, you have to have pre-registered the work even today. So this awful system, which is created to serve the, the object of publishers and authors who could tolerate such a system, because they don't make that many works in a given period of time, really served to uh, Almost, almost destroy the the ability of the artist to protect his work for a very long time, and uh, that's the origin of why it is that artists were really never focused on in the Copyright Act because it was thought by copyright people, well, hell, they're just like the authors. L let them let them function the way the authors, and they didn't give a damn. The Copyright Office arguably still doesn't entirely focus and care that much about right. visual artists. There's, I think there's another, uh, you know, another concept that is worth, uh, that's worth mentioning. Uh, uh, and, uh, and that is, is that the, 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 the act is, uh, I believe, and I'm not a student of this, and I'm not a copyright lawyer, uh, the, but looking to protect the replication, if you will, uh, of authorship. Um, and um, and the 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 protection was just you know not available say to an author who writes a manuscript because anybody could replicate the manuscript there was nothing unique in terms of that manuscript so it was that form of that form of protection but the the visual artwork was felt to be unique and therefore was not so easily replicable. And therefore, the value of that work 
would, and the benefit to the author would, in theory, be reflected in the initial price that would be that would be paid that would be paid to the artist. But that could not be in connection with the authorship of the work, if you will, because it wasn't potentially a collectible and it was more easily replicable. So I think there's that sort of thinking that attached to uh, the, the concept of copyright to protect to protect uh, protect authorship rights, and and I think. I think that's reflected in the Nadler bill because it raises the question: Well, what happens if the artist, uh, you know, uh, 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 creates a multiple, creates a you know a large edition? Uh, is it all you know there? Does he really need that same level of royalty continuing of, of protection? And it's reflected is that if the multiple is is 200 or less, he's entitled to it. But if the multiple is 200 or more, he's not entitled to this royalty protection. So it's just a you know an interesting little piece or glitch which has this historical background. Mm -hmm. that, that is commonly that is a very common criticism of uh, why art shouldn't have resale royalties. People say the artist gets the royalty up front. And that's why an artwork costs so much more than a poster. A poster of a Jeff, you know, whatever. A poster of one artist costs, you know, $50. The painting costs $50,000. Um, and you're getting those royalties. The only reason someone's willing to spend $50,000 is because they have the full thing. It's theirs. It's unique. Very few, very few artists get $50,000 for their work. The exception being those very established artists who may not be that concerned about a resale royalty, but those are exceptions. Um, I'm not sure if it's even been said explicitly yet, but it should be mentioned that um, the major auction houses, Christie's and Sotheby's and even eBay, uh, are lobbying very, very hard against the Art Act, and they know exactly where they stand. Um, and this is just a general observation, but when you guys were discussing your concerns that you know, uh, a royalty might encourage artists to produce market-friendly work. They might make, you know, zombie formalism or bad abstract paintings because they know a collector's going to buy it for lots and lots of money. Well, you can't, there's nothing you can do about that. Those collectors are going to buy what they want. Um, and that's a bit like complaining about the decor of the house while it's burning down or you're being robbed. Um, if, if, the, if the act passes, American artists will get royalties on their works being sold at auctions in Europe. Um, right now, they don't get them. That's, that's money that is not going to American artists right now because the bill you know, has not been passed, and that's something worth thinking about. I'm also told that some of the auction houses just pass it on to their, their clients. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So they're not yeah, that's how it works. Uh, if, I, if I buy something at Christie's Amsterdam of a Dutch artist who's alive, I think it's 4% there. Let's say I bought a Dan Van Golden painting. I would pay, and it was a, a million dollars. Um, I would end up spending a million dollars for the artwork and say, as, as, as Ted brought up, maybe $200,000 goes to the auction house and then $40,000 on top of that. Um, so 
the collector doesn't the collector that's selling it doesn't necessarily suffer and the auction house doesn't necessarily suffer it's 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 like a tariff of sorts So this is just throwing out an idea because I want feedback on what might be a horrible idea. But I'm curious to know what you all would think about artists just stopping selling 100% of a work of art. Why don't artists just sell 90% of the work of art? Like a corporation would sell 90, keep 90%, you know, whatever, you buy shares kind of in an artwork or that's, offer that to the collector. That's called a hedge fund. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but so I'm saying, okay, before we say hedge fund, But I heard hedge back. fund guys, they don't get taxed on what they make. On, on, on the, on the, what, yeah, they don't, they don't have to pay, like artists have to pay taxes, hedge fund guys don't. <laughs> Wait, but so we have a comment. Something. Well, whatever, it doesn't matter. Okay, so that so we're saying that that is considered a hedge fund, and that is a bad thing, and very different than, and and uh, Hans's way of basically asking for the tax after the full sale is purer. I think oh. it has happened. I mean, it happens all the time, frankly. Uh, that uh, artists keep maintain sure. percentages of the sale. Sure, and it happens quite often that the dealer maintains, you know, oh, I have this million dollar painting, uh, someone wants to buy it, why don't we go in on it together? Damien Hurst's famous skull, oh, yeah, that's true. Damien, uh, yeah. Damien Hurst's famous skull, mm. he couldn't oh, right. sell the whole thing, so he sold a percentage of it. But often this way, I, I, I uh, uh, thank you, and, and I really think like, uh, 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 as Lauren brought up early, like, we really need help, you know? Uh, like I'm, uh, like. Who the dealers or the artists? No, no, definitely not the dealers. <laughs> but we all need help to figure out how to deal with this. Um, uh, but 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 yeah. percentaging an artwork is very much the mentality of the hedge fund. It is. Or, or the guess, investor, yeah. um, which is 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 not uh, for myself. That's not the mentality I'm striving for. Mm -hmm. You know. I'm just wondering how it could be used, not. I'm not trying to talk about the mentality of it, you know what I mean? Well, there have been efforts to sort of rent art, I remember. Yeah. Where there's, like, there's been a history of that. I feel like there has been that, but I can't remember what. Yeah, I can maybe briefly speak to part of that. Um, uh, the sort of idea of having a joint venture, um, and I've seen this a couple of times between a dealer and a collector. Um, I'm an attorney and I've handled a handful of these types of matters. And it seems as though the litigation risk of these sort of joint ventures going bad um, is frankly quite high. Um, expectations are not met and the parties find themselves renegotiating pieces of how the work is supposed to be dealt with, whether it can be consigned, what the timing of attempted sales are, because people want their money back. And frankly, it's, when, when expectations aren't met, it gets very nasty. But joint ventures happen frequently. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it makes me think again if, we, if we're using the wrong rhetoric for this. 
you know, in the way that you were talking about, thinking about the art object and separate from the artist mm -hmm. way, like whether we're really talking about an economy that's clearly not even the art economy. Yeah, that, that's what it seems. Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. I guess I had a question about how this might, although it's written currently only for visual artists, uh, how the implications of this might affect other forms of artists or other forms of craftsmen. For example, if you're an architect who designs a house and that house gets resold, I don't think we'd have any expectation that Frank Lloyd Wright's family would continue to get money every time his houses get sold. H however, or sorry, or if I'm a contractor and I, you know, spend, do you pay me ten thousand dollars to put in a new kitchen? and it increases the property value of your house by $20,000, how do you deal with these sort of gray areas where people are not officially labeling themselves artists but are still producing original work that is non-reproducible? That, that's a super great point uh, about the architect. And that, that, that point gets, the Frank Lloyd Wright example gets brought up often in defense of resale royalties because people say, you know, uh, uh, you know, if I buy a car, I can do whatever I want with the car. You know, I can soup it up. I can smash it. I can abandon it. You can't do that with a Frank Lloyd Wright building. You can't put in whatever blinds you want. It's your property. Uh, but there are regulations of it. Um, same with Mies van der Rohe's buildings. Uh, any number of architecturally, you know, uh, established to be preserved buildings are regulated property, and in fact, they often sell for less than those that aren't. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, this yeah. is also a specific class of property that has been labeled as like historic uh, properties that, you know, yeah. th there's a specific law that then dictates that. But I'm talking about for like a regular contractor, in the same way that you were earlier discussing how this law might only affect the top 10% of artists. So assuming that we're not just talking about the Frank Lloyd Wrights of the world, but other contractors or architects who might consider their work to be as artistically interesting as Frank Lloyd Wright, but don't have some sort of government agency, you know, giving them that seal of approval. It's, it's, it's fairly rare. Uh, uh, in this same argument about Frank Lloyd Wright, what then gets, thank you, your, your point is very important. Uh, the counter to it is that it's very rare that homes go up in value because of the architecture and not because of the location of the property. Yeah. It's extremely rare. So if I may just add, ours represents Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh, rights. <laughs> and and there, are, there are ways in which the architect benefits, which are somewhat comparable to the current ways artists benefit. And that is that if you have a photograph of a plan or elevation of a right building, the foundation, the right foundation is, um, is able to collect a fee for that, if it wishes to allow it. Uh, those kinds of reproductions do earn a fee for that. It's not the same as the buying and selling of the work, but it's comparable to a reproduction of an artist's work which may appear in a book, which will then uh, earn a fee for the artist. So there, there are some returns for the architects, but not comparable to what you'd get if it was a resale of a work. Um, I just wanted to return to Rebecca's sort of comment about the real loss being for public institutions. Um, and I wonder if anyone here knows sort of more about this than I do, a sort of strange example. Um, Beverly Hills actually has a law on the books that requires buildings uh, that 
are newly built in Beverly Hills over a certain cost, and I'm not sure what the number is, to then donate 1% of the cost of the building um, to be spent on public art in Beverly Hills. And it's resulted in maybe not so much great public art, um, but I wonder if there's something, a similar structure in the kind of secondary market that requires, you know, sort of proceeds to go back to, um, as was kind of mentioned earlier, um, you know, funds for collecting at public institutions. But there is this already kind of strange example happening in, in Beverly Hills. No, I think that happens in a lot of places. I think even in New York, you have to give percent for the arts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. Yeah, yeah. So maybe one thing that you're that, that you're bringing up too is this provision in the 2011 version of Act, which um, would sort of fund for museums to collect the work of living artists, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it's interesting. I mean, it's I think we can maybe understand why that would have been struck, but it is interesting that you know these kind of provisions about how, well, one the issue of how this is going to affect public museums um, is not really a part of the conversation and then yeah. kind of what other options there are other than, you know, mm -hmm. what was already struck from the 2011 Act, right. um, which is what you're getting at too. Uh, you know, when I came here, I thought that this was going to be a relatively focused event. Uh, obviously, so many different topics have been brought up, and so many of these topics are so complex in and of themselves that my head is swimming. I actually know a lot about a lot of these things, like for instance, what Rebecca's talking about, about the insurance problem. You know, I'm involved with exhibitions that have to be indemnified by governments or else they can't take place. Uh, and then you have to vet the government, do I want? to take the indemnity of that government. Uh, it basically, I, I agree with Howard that maybe the focus now should be on something that is less ambitious, particularly at the beginning, that allows artists, and ideally not necessarily the Gerhard Richters of the world necessarily, to, to get some residual income if their work say comes up at auction, maybe later on there'll be an enforceable way of getting it in other secondary market venues. Uh, this, it hasn't been perfect in Europe, but it's been going on for a number of years. Everybody who buys at auction pays a little tithe and it is capped. But, you know, I'm sure just in principle and sometimes economically. You know, I think it, the point that it was that we need it for a building block to get further regulation. No, that's what I'm saying. Is that yeah. is a, a real argument, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's important too. But I, I think in terms of the, a lot of these are very interesting discussions that have been going on. But I, I agree that that's, the, it's the only pragmatic step that can be taken now to go in other directions. Also will give everybody more time to think about the realities and the ramifications of some of these different proposals. Because a lot of them are a lot more complicated, both pragmatically, legally, and even ethically, than uh, you know than might be apparent when they suddenly occur to one. Uh, you know, so I think that to the extent that there are a lot of artists who are very interested in this topic, and a lot of people in the art world in general, 
I think that something along the lines of the artist resale royalty uh, uh, system that exists in Europe now is probably a good first step. And then people can contemplate other measures and they can see what's practical, they can have their debates. Uh, I, I think that even the ethical issues are so complicated here. No matter who the actor is in the art world, particularly in the absurdly inflated uh, size and economy of the art world now, there are good, bad, and questionable actors of every type. Artists, collectors, dealers, auction houses, uh, art finance people, even museums. In fact, the museum world is changing tremendously. Many of the really established experienced curators now feel totally disrespected by, I mean, this has not been made public yet, but let me tell you, this is gonna break soon. Museums are being run as essentially entertainment venues, and the boards want content. Now, not everybody can afford to have a Rembrandt or a Van Gogh or even a Gerhard Richter, and there aren't enough to go around because there are so many museums and so many venues in the world now of one type or another. Even the term museum, particularly as used in the contemporary art world, it is an extremely flexible term. You know, I mean, the Metropolitan Museum is a museum. Is a museum that's set up somewhere, it's sort of a semi-nonprofit space, maybe it's a foundation, it's a collector, it's whatever, it, you know, is that a museum? I mean, generally it's referred to as such, and there's everything in between. And the professional and ethical practices of museums at all levels, it, you know, as I say, this gets to be a very complicated subject. A lot of museums right now are toying with the idea of outsourcing, because their boards are used to this concept, of outsourcing professional services. So you don't even need curators in a museum. You can just have private contractors who are retained, and we've seen some of this, particularly with star curators, to curate individual shows. And they may then form companies, essentially, or they may just be floating independent stars. Same with restorers, same with research. Uh, the art world is so on steroids in so many ways, and a lot of it certainly has to do with money and with the, the B-school culture and the Wall Street culture. These issues are... Thank you. To, I just wanted to say that Howard's proposal, I think, is you know, something that simplifies and gets this on track. Yeah, we, we, yeah, we gotta go. Yeah. Yeah. I think let's, okay. let's, uh, yeah, we can re re retire upstairs and ask more questions and debate. Thank you very much for the time.